What's up, everybody? Welcome. It is me, your Nuclear Barbarian, and I am here with another installment of the Nuclear Barbarians podcast. And today, I have a very distinguished guest who's been in the nuclear space, the strongest and the longest, Rod Adams of Nucleation Capital and Atomic Insights, correct? That's right. All right. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for inviting me. Now, I'd like to get to know a little bit more about you before we get into some stuff about Advanced. And I was reading on your very helpful site. By the way, I was spending some time, I think, a couple weeks ago going through and reading some of your very helpful stuff on Nixon's Project Independence. So thank you for that, because there's not a lot of information out. So anybody who wants to do historical deep dives, go check out Rod's site. Yeah, there's about 3,000 articles there. So I've yeah. been doing it a long time. Yeah, and almost 300 podcast episodes. That's correct. I'm just a little guppy in comparison. <laughs> but You're I was young and I'm kind of gray. So. Well, I was reading on your site that you worked on a Navy sub. You're a submarine engineer? Yeah. A couple of them, yeah. Couple yeah. Of them, yeah. Did a JO tour and an engineer officer tour, which is a department head who's responsible for the whole power plant, plus all the other engineering stuff on board, all the electrical systems. The shitters, the oxygen generators, which I guess are these days more popular known as hydrogen generators, atmosphere control equipment, all that stuff was under my purview. Wow. That's amazing. So how did you end up there? Well, I decided when I was very young that I wanted to study nuclear energy. All the way through high school, I told everybody I was going to be a nuclear engineer. And this was in the 1970s when that was a popular thing to say mm -hmm. uh, in the 70s people were thinking about doing something in nuclear in the same way people in the 90s were thinking about doing something in computers mm. or something in, in communications. So when I was telling my guidance counselor that I wanted to study nuclear engineering, he said the best people to teach nuclear engineering is the Navy. Mm. And he said, and they've got this great college you can go to for free. And I said, if it's free, it's for me. Yeah. You were like, I like that price tag. <laughs> yeah. And not only that, they paid me. I got a, I got a monthly salary wow. to go to college. Uh, it wasn't very big. Sure. You know, it was in a few hundred dollars a month, but it was better than paying for school. Mm -hmm. And then when I graduated from the academy or close to graduation, I applied for and was accepted to the Navy nuclear power program. Got interviewed by Admiral Rickover. And, uh, no way. Oh, yeah. I, wow. That's Admiral amazing. Admiral Rickover <laughs> interviewed every single officer being trained in nuclear energy from about 1953 all the way to 1982. Um, oh, man. I graduated from the academy in 81. So I was in the second to last class to be interviewed by Rickover. So that was an interesting experience. My, my interview lasted probably less than a minute. I went into the... <laughs> I went into the interview. He said, mm, Adams, so why were you an English major? <laughs> and I said, well, because I like to read and write, sir. He says, right, huh? Have you ever written any books? And I said, not yet, sir. He said, so I've written three of them. Have you ever read any, read any of them? And I said, not yet, sir. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, get out of here. So that was it. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great tale. I love it. So I've been reading about utility history lately mm -hmm. and the downfall of the utility consensus, which starts to happen around the 70s. And 
It is heartbreaking in some ways, in mm -hmm. many ways, especially to hear young Rod Adams was like, I'm going to work in nuclear and everybody was like, awesome. And then it's like 10 years later, it's a totally different scene. Mm -hmm. Did you feel that shift as it was happening at all? In some ways. I was in college. I mean, it was before my Rick Over interview, mm -hmm. the Three Mile Island happened. Mm -hmm. and I, I saw what was being said and what was being heard. And I just couldn't understand why people were so frightened or, or you know, whatever. They, they, the reaction didn't seem to me to be anywhere uh, close to reality. Mm -hmm. it just, you know, I could read and say, well, you know, yeah, people were asked to leave and they came back. Nobody got hurt. You know, it. it's not like it's the only time that people have been evacuated for the risk of an industrial accident. People get evacuated for when a tanker car carrying chlorine overturns, mm -hmm. when a natural gas leak happens and, you know, people are worried about it. And, you know, when a natural gas leak happens, it's not too uncommon for an explosion to follow soon after, a rather impressive explosion sometimes. So, you know, I just didn't understand why people were so uh, upset. And then, you know, I, I went to nuclear power school and put my head down and worked really hard for most of the 80s, spent maybe a third of the 80s underwater, not reading newspapers or doing anything other than occasionally seeing headlines. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when I was home, I had lots of things that were of concern, my family, those kinds of things. So throughout the 80s, I really didn't pay much attention to what was going on in nuclear. And sometime around 1990, I started to wonder what had happened to this amazing energy source, this energy source to me that was magical. I mean, I would go on a submarine and just think about the fact that the, the core of a, of a reactor on a submarine is approximately small enough to fit underneath my office desk. Wow. And that core contained fissile material that weighed almost exactly as much as my current body weight. I used to say it was less than my current body weight, <laughs> <laughs> or a little bit more than my current body weight, I should say. It was a little bit more than my current body weight then, but yeah. I've, I've grown to, to meet it. <laughs> yeah. Time comes for us all, I suppose. <laughs> and and that, that amount of material powered a 9,000-ton submarine for 14 years my without God. refilling. And it was clean enough for people to live inside a sealed tube underwater with this sub this power plant running it provided us not only propulsion power it can move our environment at speeds in excess of 20 knots which is all i'm allowed to say mm -hmm. and but it powered our atmosphere control equipment it powered our oxygen generators the computers the refrigerators the the you know everything that we needed on board a submarine was powered with this emission-free source and we did have a battery on board. We needed emergency power now and again if the reactor had a problem. Mm -hmm. The battery could supply us for maybe a couple of hours mm -hmm. if we rigged for reduced electrical and cut all of our loads down to minimum. Mm -hmm. And we didn't try to go any faster than four knots. Mm -hmm. And so that, and it was a big battery, by the way. One of the first things you do when you're an officer on board a submarine is to become a battery charging lineup officer. Mm -hmm. In other words, you have to really be careful about how you uh, control the ventilation systems 
to make sure that the hydrogen that gets generated when you're charging a lead acid storage battery gets uh, dissipated and ev evacuated from the ship. Because mm -hmm. concentrations of hydrogen are really dangerous. Really dangerous and really hard to contain. Tiny yeah. molecule. Well, you know, one of the, the, uh, the last deadly accidents that the nuclear submarine force had was an accident on the USS Bonefish, which happened while I was an active submariner, and they had a battery fire. It just, you know, wow. terrible thing. So, of course, like I said, that happened when I was still an active submariner, which I stopped being an active submariner about 1990. Hmm. So, so what happens after 1990? You continue in the nuclear space, I imagine. I did, yeah. I, in 1990, I, f I finished my engineer tour. Mm -hmm. So I'd spent the 80s underwater and almost exactly the end of 1989, I finished my engineer tour. So I was assigned to go to the Naval Academy as a, as a, as a company officer going to ended up being. I was, had a different assignment when I first got there, but they decided that I, they needed some mature company officers for various reasons. But anyway, so I was lieutenant commander, signed as a company officer, just spent three years as the engineer off a submarine engineer officer of a submarine mm -hmm. and had a lot of free time on my hands, even though I was a parent and doing all kinds of mm -hmm. cool stuff with my kids, I needed to fill some space that was available during the working day. So I took some engineering classes, audited them, and I started doing a lot of uh, reading in the library, mm. trying to figure out why this magical power source had, had such a, a failure and we'd stopped building new plants, mm -hmm. you know, in the mid 1970s before Thumahana is when we stopped ordering new plants. Yeah. We kept building them and, and some of mm -hmm. them took a long time to complete and there were still some being brought online in the late eighties, but all those were started before 1974. So yeah. It, the, the time went from about four years ish for construction to 12. So a lot well, of stuff, it's not, I don't want to say across the board. I'm just saying that that's why some of the things that get built, started in the seventies, switch on in the eighties. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a lot of ex explanations for that. One of the things that doesn't get spoken about much is that some of the, the earliest scheduled expansions, scheduled delays were not necessarily caused by regulations. Mm -hmm. the, the industry took a lot of orders in rapid succession I and mean, who refuses an order. Yeah. But their factories really weren't up to the task of producing some of the long lead time items like pressure vessels and steam generators and reactor coolant pumps mm. uh, that they needed. And so some of the earliest delays were simply caused by the backlog of key equipment. And those delays didn't help the industry. Mm -hmm. In particular, because once, I mean, utilities plan a long time in advance. And if they have plants that they know are going to get ready to retire, mm -hmm. they have to plan five or 10 years in advance to order a new facility and to get it ready before the old one drops off. You, you, they plan in a make before break situation, which mm -hmm. is you got to have the new one online before you can take the old one offline. And so when the nuclear plants got delayed three, four, and five years, some of those older plants had to be extended mm -hmm. several times. So that, that didn't make nuclear very popular with the utilities. 
yes, there was also a lot of regulatory ratcheting that occurred, mm -hmm. and some of that slowed down the, the construction. And then Three Mile Island did insert about a three-year stop. The, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission did not uh, approve anything for about three years after Three Mile Island. They were going through and trying to figure out what the lessons learned were, how they had to change regulations, those kinds of things. And so that stretched all the plants out. Now, that coincided with something that you and your generation probably don't quite understand, but the prime interest rate was roughly 18 to 20 percent. Mm -hmm. The mortgage the rate on a mortgage was 14 or 15 percent. And if you've got a project like a nuclear power plant underway, and you insert a three-year delay, not only do you have this workforce paying issue, you got to keep paying the, the workers, mm -hmm. otherwise they dissipate and all your knowledge gets lost, but now you're also paying interest on your money that you borrowed to construct. And at the doubling time of 14% interest rates is maybe, what, six years? Mm -hmm. So just six years, the cost of your plant could double. It's crazy. So yeah. that's, and it's that a also, way to piss off ratepayers too. Well, yeah, it, it didn't piss off ratepayers. Now, initially, th there was some of this, the, the utility, monopoly utility model mm -hmm. with an obligation to serve allowed the Public Utility Commission to set rates. Mm -hmm. and They set them based on the capital invested plus a return uh, on capital, and a certain percentage return on capital. So utilities didn't take them long to figure out that the bigger their capital investment, the more their profit. Because if you have a percent of capital investment, well, the number of dollars returned as profit increases as capital investment increases. Mm -hmm. So they did have a... a kind of a, a bias towards more expensive projects. And once they got approval to build a project, they weren't as aggressive as many owners are in keeping their contractors in line. Mm -hmm. If a contractor came in and said, hey, you know, this cost went up, the utilities for the most part were pretty lax about saying, okay, we'll just pay higher cost. Mm -hmm. really stop them. And especially if the cost increases was due to a change in federal regulation, yep. the utility said, ah, we can't do anything about that. We can't question it. The Public Service Commission said, hey, you know, their, their increase is due to federal regulation changes. We understand that. We accept it. Boom. The rate increase got approved. Nobody mm -hmm. fought very hard. So that was a, a challenge. And all of those things, the, the scheduled delays, the regulatory ratcheting that increased scheduled delays again, the high interest rates that caused projects to be very expensive, led to a situation where every time a new nuclear plant came online, the first thing the utility did was to go to the Public Service Commission and say, we now have this plant operational. It's in our rate base. Mm -hmm. We need a rate increase to pay for it. So all the customers got taught regularly 
mm-hmm. that nuclear equal expensive electricity. Yep. So from even outside of all of the, the opposition that was organized and fighting against nuclear, there was this kind of understandable dislike of continued rate increases mm-hmm. and dislike of long projects. Well, and especially because a lot of this hits around the energy crisis when people are getting hammered by stagflation and fuel prices being wild. And there's a lot of political panic over what to do about this as well. And that ended up hitting the utilities hard as well. Sometimes utility executives or the utility elite, whatever we want to call them, were busy putting out fires and couldn't have other fights or advocate for themselves. Well, you got to make sure that you understand the, the sequence of events. Mm-hmm. The energy crisis, the first one. The, 73, well, actually, right? Actually, the first one was 1971 when much of the Northeast was ran out of gas mm. and they had to shut down schools and a bunch of other stuff because they just didn't have any natural gas available. And there was reason for that regulation, pipeline challenges. Whatever. So that was actually a, a crisis that got people's attention in the Northeast, which includes Washington, D.C. Mm. Okay, so then 1973 happens when, among other things, the Arab oil embargo happened and slowed down the supply of oil to the U.S. And that experience, believe it or not, was the instigator for the very first nuclear plant project cancellations. Mm-hmm. And the project that got canceled was the offshore power systems, which was supposed to be offshore of the U.S. manufactured plants uh, by Westinghouse and Tenneco, which is a shipbuilding company. And they were supposed to supply New Jersey with power. A public service in New Jersey was the purchaser. Mm-hmm. Well, the Arab oil embargo reduced the flow of oil to the refineries in New Jersey to the point where New Jersey says, we don't need this electricity. We don't have any customers for it mm-hmm. because the flow of oil meant that the refineries got shut down. So they said, hey, we, we don't want to keep paying for these new plants if we don't have enough demand for what we have already. So they canceled the nuclear plant orders, even though it was an oil crisis that was causing mm-hmm. this. The nuclear plants got the, the brunt of it. In 79, of course, there was the Iranian revolution, which coincided almost exactly with Three Mile Island. Mm-hmm. And between the two of those, yes, the utilities got distracted by another bump in oil prices. Whenever oil prices oil prices go up, natural gas prices go up as well. Coal prices say, hey, we've got more room, we can raise our prices, and you know, all that mm-hmm. stuff happens. And yes, the utilities got into deep trouble. There was a lot of, of effort done in the late 1970s and early 80s to help the utilities survive. I remember there was a time when the tax law said that if you invested in utility stocks, you could get X number of dollars of dividends tax-free. Mm-hmm. It's one way to help the utilities. That, I mean, I, I remember that because I was kind of interested in investment. One of the neat things about graduating in the Naval Academy is I graduated with no debt and a little bonus to, to mm. start nuclear power schools. So. That's nice. <laughs> well, so you're looking back on this in the 90s. Mm-hmm. You're starting to understand what happened. And then 
Is that when you start taking a look at advanced? Are people having that conversation or does that take a little while for you to start well, moving there? I don't know about people. <laughs> but when I started having this conversation internally with me. Okay. I mean, I said, what is it that, 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 that nuclear needs to be able to succeed better? Mm -hmm. And it appeared to me that the best answer was to build simpler systems that took less time and could meet different market demands. That's mm -hmm. just the, the way I looked at it. You know, I, I'd looked at submarines and understood their power systems and thought of them as fairly simple, but still pretty complicated. Mm -hmm. And the biggest weakness to me in the nuclear propulsion system that I knew was the steam plant. Mm -hmm. Because the reactor plant, I spent almost no time, maybe three to 5% of my time mm -hmm. doing anything with the reactor plant itself. Yeah, we had to work on the control systems and a few other things, but the coolant pumps, the steam generators, the, the reactor core vessel, I think took care of itself. Mm -hmm. It just worked and kept working. The steam plant, on the other hand, was a, was a maze of pipes, valves, turbines, heat exchangers, and all those things needed constant maintenance. The heat exchangers, you know, they were had uh, salt water or river water on one side and pure water on the other side. And this, the side that had the, the salt or, or river water had to be cleaned regularly. And cleaning a, some small heat exchangers, no big deal. Cleaning the main condensers, that was a big deal. Pain, took, mm. took a lot of time. It's kind of a pain in the ass. That's, that's all I can say. Just, <laughs> and... I mean, we had to fill this this steam plant with very pure water. It wasn't enough to to run it through to produce fresh water from an evaporator. You had to run it through ion exchangers to make it really pure because steam plants don't like anything other than pure water and some some corrosion control chemicals going through the steam generator because the steam generator is this great big evaporator which mm -hmm. concentrates anything that goes in. If there's any hint of sodium chloride salt going into the steam generator, you get this buildup and the pipes in, in there, the little teeny tubes don't want sodium chloride on one side or the other. They tends to produce leaks and corrosion cracking and all mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. So you had to pure water. So all that told me that the steam plant was really the weak spot. And I had some knowledge of, of gas turbines being a naval officer and many of our ships are gas turbines. So I, I understood gas turbines pretty well, had buddies that, that were engineers on gas turbine plants. So I went to the library one day and said, what if we could combine the, the reactor, the beautiful self-controlling, physics controlling, you know, a negative temperature coefficient of reactivity reactor that, you know, lasts forever, no emissions. What if we can combine that with a, a gas turbine? Mm -hmm. So I, went into the library, which at that time had this green on green screen with a, you know, automated search of the card catalog. And mm -hmm. I typed in nuclear and gas turbine and came up with search results and realized that this, is, this was a real thing that had been thought about for many years from the earliest days of nuclear, that, that the nuclear heat source could match very well the Brayton cycle gas turbine. Mm. And I followed that path down the road of, ended up patenting a, an invention that, that I thought made this 
thing worked better, formed a small company called Adams Atomic Engines, left the Navy, went on, on reserve duty and tried to build a company. After three years, I realized that Adams Atomic Engines was about, I didn't know how many years, but we were ahead of the bleeding edge. Mm. We were not making any progress. When we first started in 1993, the price of natural gas was pretty solid at about five or six dollars a million BTU. We just had another oil scare with the Persian Gulf yep. uh, War. You know, I knew all about what was going on there, the tankers, all that stuff. And so I said, you know, the world needs a nuclear. It needs a simplified nuclear. It needs something that that works better than a nuclear steam plant, even though nuclear steam plants are pretty cool. And But by 96, the price of natural gas had dropped to $2 a million BTU. Fewer people were interested in talking about nuclear. Mm. There was all kinds of publications that were saying natural gas was going to be cheap forever. And uh, and we had this abundant source. At that time, it was coal bed methane. Mm -hmm. It was big and a few other things that were so. It was before the 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 fracking revolution, but it still was there. We had lots of gas. We built lots of gas uh, power plant capacity. It seemed like the the way to go. And so that that was my foray into advanced, my initial foray into advanced nuclear. And part of what I did when I was running Adams Atomic Engine was to start writing stories about what I thought people didn't know about nuclear and what they would like to learn. Did history, history deep dives into the Army nuclear power program, which was a program of building six small reactors of various sizes and shapes, deploying them in interesting places like Antarctica, Greenland, Alaska, let's see, Greenland, Wyoming, and right outside Washington, D.C. was actually within the Beltway. Wow. Um, down at Fort Belvoir. Man. So, so. I wrote about those things. I wrote about what the opposition was. I wrote about nuclear fuel recycling, what the mm-hmm. waste problem was, all that stuff. Was, the publication was initially called Atomic Energy Insights. Mm-hmm. But I quickly realized that AEI was a three-letter abbreviation that was taken by a group that I didn't, I didn't agree much with, the American Enterprise Institute, mm-hmm. and uh, changed the name to Atomic Insights. <laughs> gotcha. Sometime around 95, I met a college student who said, hey, Rod, we really love your, your Atomic Insights. And by, the, by the way, I was giving talks at colleges around mm-hmm. the country. And this was at University of Wisconsin. And it was an ANS, American Nuclear Society student conference um, held by the University of Wisconsin. One of the students says to me, Rod, we love your publication, but why don't you put it on the web? So other people can read it. And at that point, I said, what's a web? <laughs> it's 95, you know? Mm-hmm. So that student, now Dr. Sama Bilbao Ileon, is the director general of the World Nuclear Association. Oh, wow. So she was the one who initially did the HTML coding and, and no way atomic insights on the web. Yep. That's astounding. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. I think so. I, Sam is a wonderful lady. She she does great work. She's she's got an amazing resume. Who, you know, she's worked in utilities. She's gone mm-hmm. to the IAEA. She was a, founded the nuclear engineering program at VCU, Virginia 
Commonwealth University. Wow. Just, just an amazing person now. And she went to the Nuclear Energy Agency and now is at the World Nuclear Association. So. Man, that's amazing. So I have some listeners who are new to mm-hmm. energy, new to nuclear. And I was wondering if you could lay out for us the difference between what people call traditional and advanced nuclear in broad strokes. Sure. In the first atomic age, what I'd like to say, the initial development of nuclear as a power source, a controllable power source that could spin a turbine and generate power, propulsion power, mostly for the Navy, but electricity for the for the electro- electrical power industry. I mean, it's really, the, everything's the same except whether you turn a, a shaft with a propeller on the end or whether you turn a shaft that has an electrical generator on it. So that system, the pressurized water reactor, is water at very high temperatures, I don't know, two or 300 degrees C, and then goes through a heat exchanger and produces steam. Now, of course, if water is at 300 degrees C, which is way above the boiling point, the only way you keep it water is to keep it under high pressure. Hmm. So that's where the pressurized comes from. So you keep this water you circulate the water through a reactor that just makes it hot. Now, the reactor is just a heat source. It doesn't have to make water hot. It can make liquid sodium hot. It can make molten salt hot. It could make gas, either helium or nitrogen hot. So that's the basic though. The, the mm-hmm. old style, the first ones that were built were pressurized, were first ones that were built in large numbers. Pressurized water reactors turning a turbine. Now, General Electric did some research with the AEC, and they developed a modification of that. And they said, those heat exchangers are a big problem. What Mm. if we simply boil the water in the reactor core and produce steam? You separate the the steam out from water and you bring the water back, but you take the steam off and you send that directly to a turbine. That works fine. Boiling water reactors are about one-third of the reactors in the U.S. and roughly one-third of the reactors in the whole world are mm. boiling water reactors. They they don't have that heat exchanger, which reduce, it gets rid of some complexity and reduces the cost, but it comes with a price mm. because the steam coming out of a boiling water reactor is not separated from the reactor. It's through the reactor, so it contains radioisotopes. It's, it is radioactive steam that comes out of that boiling water reactor, goes to the turbine, and then comes back into the, into the reactor system. Hmm. So the, those two systems are pretty much the traditional nukes. And when people were developing those two technologies, it, this is mostly U.S. There's some other, you know, I don't want to make it too complicated. There was heavy water reactors in Canada. There's air-cooled reactors in France. There were CO2-cooled reactors in Great Britain. But the pressurized water and the boiling water reactor pretty much overtook the whole industry. And when they were developing those, the mantra was the economy of scale, meaning that if you built the reactor bigger, it would the cost would not grow at the same rate as the size of reactor. And I don't remember what the conversion is, but 
you you could double the power output and maybe increase the cost by 30% or 40% or 60%. But so if you double the power output, you get double the revenue. So they say that you make these cheaper, you build them bigger and bigger. And the first reactor that was built for commercial use, this demonstrator, was only 60 megawatts, the shipping port reactor. Yeah. It was eventually upgraded to 100 megawatts, but it was pretty small. Then there was a few others that were in the 200 to 300 megawatt range, moved up quickly to the 500 to 600 megawatt range, scaled those up to about the 800 megawatt range. And by the end of just a decade, reactors had gone to over a thousand megawatts. And of course, there's a certain you know assumption in engineering textbooks that costs don't scale as fast as, as size does. Mm-hmm. But the experience showed that costs scaled even faster mm-hmm. than the size scaled because one of the fundamental things you have to do in nuclear engineering is to make sure that that heat source that you really love most of the time, you want it to produce heat efficiently mm-hmm. and make sure that all the heat gets contained in the system and gets utilized, all that's important. But if the reactor is shut down, you need to make sure that the heat that continues being generated is effectively removed so that the temperatures inside the reactor don't get to a point where the reactor fuel gets damaged. Mm -hmm. And the bigger the reactor, the more complicated it can be to ensure that it keeps cool at the time that you need it to keep cool. Now, again, when the reactor is operating, you don't want to artificially cool it. You don't want to take energy out of the system. Mm-hmm. You want it to be you know, efficiently used. Yeah. But you need to be able to get the energy out when it's shut down. And one of the things that happens when you get a reactor core for your people that are new to nuclear, when you first shut down a reactor, there's radioisotopes that are in that fuel matrix and generating heat as they decay. Immediately after shutdown is roughly 7% of the power of the reactor. Now, it doesn't take very long for that stuff to decay down to about 1%, maybe a couple of hours, and it, it it's, you know follows a trajectory down. Mm-hmm. And once you get down to below 1%, it's not quite as hard to get the heat out, but you got to get the heat out when it's generating at high rates. Even when you get down to 1%, that's still a lot of megawatts. You know, one percent of a thousand megawatts is ten megawatts. Ten thousand watts, right? Ten mm-hmm. no, ten million watts. Ten million watts. Ten thousand kilowatts. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of heat, and you got to take it out. So, so the the traditional nukes are big. They have steam plants, mm-hmm. which most of the new ones do too. They have steam plants. They have large thick-walled pressure vessels. They have very careful procedures for operation, which is important. They have very high quality standards and an extensive quality assurance and oversight program. You know, all of those are, are part of what has made nuclear such a thing, but some of those actually contribute to the, the cost and complexity of new nuclear. Hmm. 
And so what, so the advanced difference is that these are, as you, I think you said earlier, simplified and have worked around some of these issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, when you go to, and, you know, many people criticize us for saying they're advanced because the basic systems have been invented many years ago and they've mm-hmm. been in many cases tested, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But in my view, advanced means modern. Mm-hmm. And even though the internal combustion engine, you know, the Wright brothers built their own internal combustion engine for their first plane and mm-hmm. Damler Benz was building internal combustion engines in the 1880s. I wouldn't open the hood of my brand new car and say it wasn't an advanced engine. Mm-hmm. All kinds of things that have been improved, different control systems, different materials, different you know functions, ways to to improve fuel economy, all that. It's it's an advanced engine. Mm-hmm. Just because it's an IC just doesn't matter. It's still advanced. So if you take the old ideas and you bring them up to date, they're advanced. There are advanced pressurized water reactors out there. The AP1000, the APR1400, the VVER1200, mm-hmm. the, the EPR, those are all advanced, impressive machines but they are big projects. Mm-hmm. They do take time to get to get up to speed and learning how to build them. They take a lot of workers and a lot of training mm-hmm. and a lot of experience to get to where they can build them effectively. And right now in the, in the, the West, that's, you know, the, the Europe and the U S we don't have a very good track record because we've only built first of a kinds. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, it's just because you've built an EPR in China or an AP 1000 in China doesn't mean that U.S. workers or Finland workers or French workers know how to build those plants. Yep. You know, it takes time. But there's other people that have taken a look at nuclear and said, you know, Nuclear doesn't have to be in just a tiny niche of the energy market. Mm-hmm. The energy market's vast. You know, it goes all the way from leaf blowers. Yeah, it's so power. big. <laughs> it's, it's so, so big. big. There's, there's propulsion systems for ships. There's mm-hmm. diesel engines that drive trains. There's aircraft engines. There's automobile engines. There's big truck engines and all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. And by going through this economy of scale idea, the nuclear industry worked itself into a very small niche of the largest utilities in the world, only the largest. In in the US, we have 6,000 electricity selling entities, Mm -hmm. and only about 20 of them are what people might consider as to be large enough to be a partial owner of a large nuclear plant. And even those they build a coalition to build a plant. Mm -hmm. You know, the Vogel plant is not entirely owned by Georgia power, even though Georgia power is a huge utility. It's part of a a bigger utility group. They only own about 45%. Mm -hmm. The others are Jacksonville electric authority, Oglethorpe, the the city. I can't remember. There's there's a lot. There's a, there's a lot of people who have skin in the game on that project. Yeah. Vogel's a big, and that's, you know, that's, when you have the idea that you need a, 
a thousand or twelve hundred megawatt plant to be effective, almost in anybody would say you need to build two of a kind at least on the site to get some economies. You know, the single unit sites are are very are I shouldn't say very they're they're uneconomic because they have to carry the whole overhead on the output of a single unit. So and that's the U.S. nuclear industries recognize the the challenges associated with single unit sites for a long time. Mm-hmm. So we always try to build two of a kind, which means you have to build a 2,400 or 3,200 megawatt facility. It's an EPR. Yeah. Okay. So again, people looked at that. They, a lot of entrepreneurs have said, hey, we like nuclear. We think there's room for an expansion of the product line. There's room for other sizes and other specialized capabilities. And so there are people that looking down in the micro reactor range at the one to five megawatts per unit. There's people looking at this, the small, uh, small modular reactor, small mm-hmm. manufactured reactors, what, what I like to say SMR stands for, in the you know range up to about 300 megawatts. And then there's some medium reactors. Mm-hmm. The One of the more famous ones these days is the Rolls-Royce project. It's about 450 megawatts. Mm-hmm. They kind of call it a, an SMR, but it's, it's a medium reactor, 450 mm-hmm. megawatts. And it's going to be manufactured mainly, and so, but wide range. Yeah. Again, the the advanced reactors can be cooled by liquid metal. There's mm-hmm. several sodium cooled reactors. There's a number of them that are that are molten salt. There's some that are gas cooled, and even at least one that's a direct cycle gas turbine, very similar to the Adams engine. Wow! No way. <laughs> that yeah. must feel good. Yeah. <laughs> so let me ask you this. I'm taking a look at what just happened with and the NRC. I felt personally, I don't know how they felt, but I felt frustrated and heartbroken. I'm not even involved, yeah. you know, because I just want nuclear to be built so badly. Yeah. What are the challenges? I know what the challenges are for big nuclear. And mm-hmm. there are a lot, especially because the utility game is, is has changed. It's not... Right. We're, we live in a post-purple world where we have totally, as you said, widely varying amount of generators who provide electricity, people who sell it, etc. So what are the issues that are obstacles for advanced right now? One of the, one of the big challenges is something that's going to be corrected. It's just going to take time to do it. And that is that the, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission... Mm-hmm. has spent its time since its founding in 1974 developing the procedures for reviewing and approving the safety of large light water reactors. Mm-hmm. They have all of these regulatory guides and, and documents that are, that are in their library that help them help their people understand exactly how to review and approve. They've got computer codes, they've got all kinds of stuff that's in that infrastructure. They have some experience at looking at some experience at looking at other types of reactors. They have some gas cooled experience, they have some liquid metal experience, but they've never actually approved it. Of course, to be honest, they've only approved a couple of large light water reactors. The only 
large light water reactor projects that have been submitted under the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. In other words, since the time that they were, were broken off from the Atomic Energy Commission in 74, the only new reactor application that's been submitted and almost completed is at Vogel. Vogel's not even completed yet, but none of the others. Every other operating nuclear plant in the U.S. submitted their initial license application to the Atomic Energy Commission. Wow. It's not a very good, never a good record of production there. And that must have been back when like David Lilienthal was still on the AEC. Uh, no, he no, was the, gone for a bit. He left the AEC, I think, in the 50s. Okay. Um, early 60s. I always forget he when there. he made the leap to being AEC to global development guy. I, yeah. <laughs> I can never remember exactly when that happened. Yeah. Well, he was AEC starting in 54. Okay. Under the Atomic Energy Act of 54, I guess. He actually took over in 50s. No, no, I take that back. Leonthal was the first chairman of the Atomic Energy yeah. Commission, which was formed after the passage of the Atomic Energy Act of 1946. Mm -hmm. He became chairman in like 1947. Yeah. So, so, so he, he was gone in the 50s. Okay. So... I mean, I joke the NRC stands for Nuclear Rejection Committee because that's what it that's what it feels like sometimes. And it seems like, you know, I come for, I guess my, my my lineage is from people who are very much focused on traditional nuclear. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me like a great opportunity for advanced and traditional nuclear people, because I think we need all types of generation on the grid from mm -hmm. nuclear. You know, like I lived in New Mexico for a while. There are parts of New Mexico that don't really need thousands and thousands of megawatts from a it just wouldn't make sense for right. for what's happening out there. It seems like figuring out a way to rework the regulatory regime is, is something that is in all of our interests going forward. Yep. Now there there is a there is a formal process underway right now okay. to try to change the regulations or add another another set of regulations called, and it's called the part 53 mm -hmm. process. Right now, there are two different processes you can follow to get a operating license. And one is the part 50 process in which you actually have two steps. You uh, get a construction permit. Mm -hmm. And then after you've mostly built your plant, you can apply for an operating license. The other one is the part 52 process, which is a, a one-step, and I'll put that in quotes, one-step process where you apply for a combined license, which mm -hmm. is both construction and operating. And that process is the one under which Vogel is being built. Now, I put the quotes around that as a, as a because part of the Part 52 process is you have to produce a set of inspection tests, something ITAC is what it's called, yeah, inspection and test programs to check things that you've constructed to make sure you built them in accordance with what you said you were going to do when you got your initial license. But the ITAC can be very complicated. In Vogel, it's something like 1,200 different things they have to do to, to meet God. the ITAC requirements. Man. And you have, to, you have to pass all those before you can get started. 
Yeah, it's not like you just be like, well, I'll get a B on some of these and A's on the rest. (laughs) It's not like how I used to treat my high school career and otherwise, in other words. So anyway, let's go back to, so the NRC is making changes. Now, going back to Oklo, Oklo is suggesting some significant changes in the way the, the NRC reviews applications, particularly for advanced nuclear mm-hmm. power. And they submitted two methodology reports, one for how they determine what their maximum critical, maximum credible accident is, mm-hmm. and one for determining how to classify system structures and components. You know, and I, I can't really speak fully because I have, I can't, sure. Anyway, yeah. I can't speak fully. I understand. Um, <laughs> But part of the reason that the NRC and it and it wasn't it was an action that was surprising and probably there's some people that are busily explaining why they did it. Mm-hmm. But part of the reason I think that the NRC issued this letter rejecting without prejudice, by the way, mm-hmm. rejecting Oklo's application was by doing that they stopped the clock, mm-hmm. and the NRC was under a pretty strict clock, according to a law passed by uh, the Congress a couple of years ago, Nuclear Energy Modernization Act, I think is what it was, which one it was. Mm-hmm. The NRC has 36 months to review and approve an, an, an advanced nuclear power application. And they don't normally do a process of requests for information, RAIs, requests for additional information, and then get a response back from the from the applicant. Hmm. But if they do that process too many times, their clock keeps ticking. Yeah. And they start feeling like there's no way they can complete the review in the amount of time Congress said they have to do to complete it. And no government uh, employee really likes to to violate a direction given to them by Congress. Mm-hmm. So I think that part of the reason that they rejected it and they'll be open to resubmission. It's even, it's in their budget and all that stuff. They'll be open to resubmission um, at certain time, but that process will not count against their 36 month time limit. And I don't know if they're going to have to go back to to day one or not. I guess we'll find out, but you know, I'm still, very encouraged by what Oklo is doing. I think mm-hmm. they're they're a, a group that's not afraid to lead, not afraid to push the envelope. And if you're pushing the envelope, you can't be surprised if the gatekeepers push back a little bit. Yeah, they're keeping Sometimes the gate after keep all. Pushing. You have to keep pushing. You know, you, you have to keep pressing your way through the gate and opening it up. And and one of the things I like about Oklo is that they're opening it up for everybody. Mm-hmm. They're, they're documenting what they're doing. They're filing topical reports that can then be referenced by others once they get approved, you know, that stuff. So, you know, I'm still encouraged. I'm not, you know, no reluctance. I'm still very encouraged by what they're doing. I have a great deal of admiration mm-hmm. for them. You know, their, their initial system, and, you know, they've been pretty open about their philosophy of development. They, they like the way Tesla grew by first producing a very small, simple, but sexy as hell mm-hmm. car, they got people who are willing to spend one hundred and fifty or one hundred and forty thousand dollars on this 
super looking, easy to build, mm-hmm. sharp, you know, vehicle. And that revenue that they generated from that and the, the buzz and all the other things they generated from that, those roadsters allowed them to build out a more complete car line. Mm-hmm. And now I think they're the most valuable car company in the world, mm-hmm. even though they don't produce as many vehicles as, say, a GM or a Toyota. You know, people admire what they did, but their strategy was what I call the early adopter strategy. Find somebody who really needs what you can do, what your system does. They don't have any really, they either do it because it's really cool or they do it because they have no other options. Mm-hmm. And Oklo's first system to design to supply power in regions where the only option right now is a big diesel engine mm-hmm. with fuel that has to be delivered from hundreds to thousands of miles away. They're not competing against cheap natural gas. Yeah, exactly. So there's big incentives to adopt what they're making. I mean, I very much admire the process as I've outlined it as well, especially having the documentation for other people to reference and stuff like that. That is a scouting mission that we should all feel grateful for. So before we wrap up, because this has been excellent, I feel like I could... I mean, I could pick your brain about (laughs) utility stuff for hours, honestly. But what are some closing ideas you want to leave listeners with about the future of nuclear? One of the things I'd like to mention to people is there is a tremendous amount of momentum being built. And it's not necessarily as visible as it will be in just a few more months, maybe Mm -hmm. a few years. But Many minds are being changed about nuclear based on, you know, all of its advantages. But the most exciting benefit, the one that's really mm-hmm. generating people's movement, people's changing mind, is nuclear's ability to generate power without air pollution and without emissions. Climate change is a big deal. And there's a lot of people who really want to address that problem. And they're recognizing that the other alternatives can't do it by themselves. So like the the European uh, Commission had been through a very contentious process of developing this thing called the uh, Sustainable Activities Taxonomy, and often just referred to as the EU Taxonomy. And nuclear is, is in the, the mix as of the 31st of December of last year, so 2021. It's been discussed. It's not quite final yet, but it's pretty solid that nuclear is going to be recognized as a sustainable activity, which mm-hmm. makes it eligible now for all of the funds that people designate for ESG-friendly investments. That's environmental, social, and governance. Mm-hmm. It's a huge deal. Another thing I want to mention is these advanced nuclear companies, many of them are startups. Mm-hmm. They are going through the startup evolution in ways similar to all of the successful tech companies that come out of Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, they're, that's where they're headquartered. They're, they're, and Oklo is one of them. They're finding people who understand the importance of groundbreaking technology of disruptive technology and 
entrepreneurs who can build a team from scratch to come up with products that meet what the market needs. Now, I'm saying this because I'm going to take a little bit of time for a, a very short ad. You mentioned that I am now a, at Nucleation Capital mm -hmm. or a partnership that has developed a fund that is investing specifically in advanced nuclear and deep decarbonization. Mm -hmm. My partner, Valerie Gardner, is a tech entrepreneur, has been an uh, investment uh, advisor for the last 20 years and started trying to figure out exactly how you would build a balanced portfolio with a big energy sector, like an energy sector roughly equivalent to the size of the energy sector in the, in the global market, but do it in a way that takes out fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. And she said, you can't do that with wind and solar. You got to go to what can actually generate competitive power. And so she recognized that, that nuclear is the way to go. Mm -hmm. A little bit unusual for a, a tech entrepreneur, a resident of Atherton and Silicon Valley. And, you know, it's a little bit outside of the milieu, but, you know, she's a bright, independent thinker. So we've That's built awesome. this thing. And by the way, we're not exactly a traditional venture capital fund. We are taking investments from people who can qualify as accredited investors and taking them in increments in, in the range of $5,000 per quarter for four quarters. But it's not like it's, eliminate, it's limited to high net worth individuals or mm -hmm. foundations or pension funds or whatever. It's, we believe that there are many people that want nuclear to succeed and don't mind helping nuclear to succeed and to buy a piece that might help them to gain a return. And we believe there's some good returns in this. That's awesome. Well, we will end here, Rod. Thank you for coming on. The leaf blower guy is attacking the area around my apartment. <laughs> so it seems like now is as good a time as any. People can find you, Atomic Rod, on Twitter, I believe, and at AtomicInsights.com. That's right. All right. Remember, everybody, stay sharp, stay strong, I'm stay radiant. We'll yeah, see you I'm next time. I'm a leaf blower. <laughs> <laughs>